Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash BYU. This program is supported by an independent medical education grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Welcome to this Pure Voice panel discussion on acute lymphoblastic leukemia and lymphoblastic lymphoma. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Kjeld Schmigelow and Drs. Daniel D'Angelo and Rachel Rao. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. So, hello, my name is Kjeld Schmigelow. I'm a professor in pediatrics and pediatric oncology at the University Hospital Rishospitalet in Copenhagen, Denmark. And I welcome you to this activity on aspergenase therapy in children and young adults with acute lymphoblastic leukemia or lymphoblastic lymphoma, with the main question on when is it indicated to switch aspergenase formulation. Joining me in this discussion is my esteemed colleague, Professor Dan Delangelo from the Anafaba Cancer Institute, Boston, uh, the US, and Professor Rachel Rao from Baylor College of Medicine, Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. So why do we use aspergenase so widely in our current regimens? The standard treatment for patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia today is an induction therapy to obtain remission and then continuation therapy for several years. And aspergenase does play a role in these protocols, both in high-risk leukemia and in standard-risk leukemia. So, uh, Professor Rao, uh, how do you see aspartanase being a part of our therapy currently? I think this slide nicely demonstrates the fact um, that childhood uh, ALL and lymphoblastic lymphoma has really been a, a great medical success story over the years. As you can see, we've improved outcomes um, with survivals less than 30% in the 1960s to now in excess of 90% of, of children surviving their disease with current therapies. Um, and certainly a lot of things have factored into those improvements, including improvements in risk stratification, um, uh, improved CNS-directed therapy, um, but definitely we refined our chemotherapy backbone along the way. Um, and with the introduction of asparaginase in the mid-1970s, we can see substantial improvements um, likely uh, attributable to, to the addition of asparaginase and the optimization of its use in these protocols. And then how do you see this scenario when we compare adults with children that have acute lymphoplastic leukemia. Yeah, I mean, I think this slide really highlights this gap, this adolescent, uh, young adult gap that we see in the outcomes, uh, where there's this unexpected fall off in uh, survival uh, as patients uh, uh, are in their uh, late teens, early 20s, that cannot be accounted for just by biology. Clearly, the biology changes as patients get older. But the differential biology, that is the cytogenetics, molecular changes from an 18, 19-year-old to a 20 to 24-year-old are unlikely to account for this difference. And it's likely represented by the differences in uh, therapies. Historically, at least in the United States, adults have been treated predominantly uh, by adult oncologists, uh, both in academic and non-academic centers, using more myelosuppressive therapies and, and veering away from asparaginase and uh, the pediatric regimens that we just saw uh, Dr. Rao present uh, that have really been the mainstay and the success in pediatric patients. And I think going back to the roots and the fundamentals of trying to re-explore 
what worked in pediatrics uh, in our young adult population will hopefully close this gap. Thank you. So, uh, Professor Rao, could you emphasize some of the differences that we currently see between children uh, and adults when we look at the various asparagine formulations that we are using? The uh, regulatory approval and the availability may differ from country to country, but by and large, um, the vast majority of patients with uh, ALL or lymphoblastic lymphoma will receive a, a long-acting pegylated E. coli asparaginase as their frontline uh, asparaginase preparation. The most widely used in pegaspargase, which is again a native E. coli uh, preparation that has had its half-life extended by addition of um, polyethylene glycol moieties, um, expect its uh, duration of activity to be uh, at least 14 days, and therefore the dosing interval that's recommended is, is giving this uh, up to every 14 days. Now, more recently, there's been another pegylated E. coli asparaginase product come on the market, um, Calaspargase uh, Pegol, currently only approved for IV administration, and we, so its duration of activity goes out to at least 21 days, so it can be given less frequently uh, for patients receiving uh, asparaginase products. Additionally, of course, um, for patients who have had an allergic reaction to an E. coli-derived asparaginase, they need an alternative preparation uh, that is not immunologically cross-reactive. Um, and for this, we relied on asparaginase derived from a different bacteria, Erwinia chrysanthemy. This is a native preparation without uh, one that's been modified to have a longer half-life. Um, so in IM administration, it lasts about 0.65 days, uh, and IV significantly shorter at 0.31 days. Um, and therefore, with the goal of maintaining asparagine depletion for the same amount of time as a patient's pegaspargase dose, uh, patients get multiple doses over the two-week period of time in which you want to maintain their asparagine depletion. An issue with asparaginase, with Arwinia asparaginase that we've had is it's challenging to manufacture. And those manufacturing challenges have led to uh, recurrent and often prolonged drug shortages. Uh, and therefore, there's been a recombinant uh, version of Arwinia chrysanthemy produced now um, it's uh, the same protein, um, but it is produced in a recombinant fashion in uh, Pseudomonas uh, fluorescens bacteria. Um, this is only currently approved for IM administration given every other day, um, but the FDA is currently reviewing uh, data for IV administration and for alternate um, dosing schedules. So hopefully more flexible options will be available to our patients soon. Thank you. This study uh, is from the COG group and it highlight the consequences of missing asparaginase therapy, the red line where patients that had hypersensitivity didn't have replacement with Avinia, and they have a clearly significantly increased risk of relapse. On the other hand, when patients had their uh, asparaginase replaced by Avinia in case of hypersensitivity, their outcome was exactly the same as those that could continue their plant therapy. Uh, this study from the Nordic group basically say the same thing, that if you truncate therapy, uh, your outcome will be inferior. However, in this study, it wasn't just hypersensitivity, it was a line of other ways of truncation of therapy, either by organ toxicity, like pancreatitis or thrombosis, but also by silent inactivation. So the enzyme activity was also measured in this study. So those two factors, asparagine inactivation, or the true truncation of therapy, not giving any more doses, in that combined effort, it led to a significantly increased risk of relapse. Yeah, so now we have in detail addressed the hypersensitivity issue, and we all agreed whether you are, have a patient in childhood, adolescence, and or an adult patient, you need to replace 
with a Vignan case of hypersensitivity. But there are other toxicities. So, Professor D'Angelo, will you comment on hepatotoxicity and thrombosis? They're all very important questions that come up all the time. I think with the exception of pancreatitis, at least clinical pancreatitis, uh, uh, we usually rechallenge patients, as you can see from this slide. Uh, uh, even patients, uh, patients with chemical pancreatitis or just elevations of their uh, lipase, uh, we will rechallenge. And, and there has been some data, you know, with uh, very mild symptoms, even rechallenging them. Uh, hepatotoxicity, it's important to note that that typically occurs predominantly during the first month of therapy during the induction, although it can happen at any time, but it seems to be worse at that point. And it's often associated with patients with a high uh, body mass index. Uh, you know, just because a patient has hepatotoxicity during induction should not negate the use of it during consolidation therapy. I think that's important. With respect to thrombosis, uh, you know, we, we anticoagulate all our patients who have th uh, symptomatic uh, thromboses. Uh, we do not replete fibrinogen unless they're bleeding. We'll often at least check antithrombin three levels. There's some data, uh, there's some limited data there. But as, if a patient does develop a thrombosis, uh, we will uh, treat and then rechallenge the patient once the thrombotic uh, event has been stabilized. And then patients with hypertriglyceridemia, again, that's another uh, issue that uh, is unclear whether patients need to be treated. It's not associated with pancreatitis. And at least in the adult world, we'll add gemfibrozole and, uh, and sometimes omega-3 fatty acids and or a statin to try and get the triglycerides under control. Thank you. Professor Rao, how do you address these various toxicities? I think pancreatitis is a field in which I've changed my thinking a bit over the years. Um, we used to be very cautious in rechallenging patients with pancreatitis, um, but I think thanks in part to a review of, of a lot of data from multiple consortiums, um, looking at children treated with uh, asparaginases who have had pancreatitis, we know that the risk of having recurrent pancreatitis if rechallenge is about 50%, and that those who will have a recurrence don't tend to have a more severe episode than their first. Um, so I think, in my opinion, basing your decision about redosing after a pancreatitis event uh, should be more based on the risk of relapse in a given patient um, than the fact that they've had a pancreatitis. Now, of course, if it's been severe, if they've had a pseudocyst or um, insulin-dependent diabetes, um, there, there may be you know, severity considerations. Um, but by and large, um, I think it's more based on uh, how necessary the asparaginase is for their cure. So it's really down to the individual patient. What is the major threat? We know that patients may have reactions that are difficult to distinguish between. Uh, so Professor Rao, could you enlighten us? How can you, how should you understand these various uh, clinical or subclinical reactions? Yeah, so patients in our clinic receiving asparaginase preparations uh, can manifest with clinical symptomatology. Um, that symptomatology usually uh, is indicative of a hypersensitivity reaction, the classic one being mediated by uh, antibodies to the asparaginase preparation. Those antibodies cause allergic-like symptoms like hives, angioedema, uh, potential respiratory issues like wheezing, um, but also those antibodies uh, quickly uh, neutralize and eliminate the drug, um, rendering it ineffective. Um, conversely, some patients who are receiving IV asparaginase preparations can have what we refer to as an infusion reaction or an allergic-like reaction likely mediated by a steep spike in the ammonia levels in the blood as a result of the activity of the asparaginase when administered by IV administration. The symptomatologies can be largely overlapping. You can have a rash, um, you can, the patient can feel short of breath and have other symptoms that, that mimic uh, a true allergic reaction. 
but these can be distinguished by sending a serum asparagase activity level because with neutralizing antibodies, um, you would have a rapid degradation of the drug and so low activity levels shortly after its administration. And that would pinpoint a, a hypersensitivity reaction requiring a switch to uh, Arrhenia asparaginase without uh, immunologic cr cross-reactivity. Um, additionally, um, patients can have antibodies without any clinical symptomatology. Um, those antibodies, while they didn't cause the true uh, clinical allergic reaction, still neutralize the drug. So it's very critical to identify these patients um, because they aren't having adequate depletion of their serum asparagine. The only way to identify these patients is, is to use therapeutic drug monitoring with serum asparagine activity levels. If the levels are very low um, after administration of the drug, um, that's indicative of silent inactivation requiring a switch to an alternative asparaginase preparation. Thank you, Professor Rao. If we do therapeutic drug monitoring, what should we target for? Uh, and there has been a historical uh, cutoff of 0.1 international units per mil uh, to ensure that you have an effective depletion of asparagine. Uh, it may be that some patients will have sufficient depletion even at lower levels. Uh, we know that if we monitor asparagine in the cerebral spinal fluid, where the enzyme, enzyme of course, doesn't pass in. Uh, we can already add plasma levels of 0.05, so the 50 international units. Polita will already there see a significant depletion. So uh, it may be that the 0.1 is quite a crude cutoff, but it's been very effective to ensure international standardization of the therapy. And with the percolated formulation, most patients will have levels that are far above this. Uh, if you have levels below it, uh, and it can either be before the next administration of percolated asparaginase, or it can be at three weeks where you use uh, calispase, then you want to have measurable levels. Um, when it comes to the shorter acting drugs, you want to see that it, they inactivated uh, much earlier. But if you have with PEC inactivation already after one or two weeks, then you need to shift to a vineyard to ensure depletion of asparagine. There are not many drugs that we use in anti-leukemic therapy that we really can regard as being essential. There's been multiple attempts to avoid uh, hydrosmethoxate and give capiti regimens. There's been attempts to avoid the alkylating agents, uh, the topotro inhibitors, including uh, the anthracyclines. When it comes to asparaginase, it really has become a critical drug that are included in all frontline therapies today. It may be that patients that have uh, a less aggressive leukemia can do with fewer doses, uh, but at least we have good data demonstrating that if for any reason the patient will not tolerate asparaginase, you need to consider what is the major threat to this patient. And that is for most of our leukemia and lymphoblastic lymphoma patients, you need to either re-expose or if it's hypersensitivity, to replace with an Irvinia formulation. Thank you for your attention. So, hello again. Uh, my name is Kels Mikalow and joining me in this uh, very clinically based practical discussion are Professor uh, Daniel Delangelo from Boston and Professor Rachel Rao from uh, Houston, Texas. And in this second part, we want to discuss very well-known patient cases that face clinical challenges and how do we manage these when they react towards an asparaginase-based anti-leukemic or anti-lymphoblastic lymphoma therapy.
So this first case is a 20-year-old male uh, of European ancestry. He has been diagnosed with B-lineage acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's Philadelphia chromosome negative, and it doesn't seem to have any involvement of the central nervous system, thus classified as CNS1. He starts a multidrug induction regimen containing pegylated asparaginase. At the end of his third dose in that protocol, he develops flushing, rash, and stomach pain. So, Professor Rao, how would you deal with this situation? How would you interpret the patient's symptoms? I think, uh, first and foremost, um, medical management of the ongoing symptomatology. So I'd stop the infusion uh, right away and assess the patient's symptoms, trying to distinguish um, if the patient was having an antibody-mediated allergic reaction versus an infusion reaction, uh, which is an allergy-like reaction that's usually caused because of a, a quick spike in ammonia in the patients receiving IV asparaginase preparations. Um, this clinical distinction can be very challenging, uh, particularly in a clinic uh, when you have a, a patient who's in distress. Um, but I think there are some symptoms that can help point in one direction or the other. Um, for instance, if you have a true antibody-mediated reaction, often these patients will have urticaria, angioedema, um, respiratory distress, including wheezing, hoarseness, um, and bronchial spasm. Um, and uh, symptomatologies of that respiratory uh, distress. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, if it's a, an infusion reaction, uh, oftentimes the, the, the skin finding that the patient will have is sort of diffuse erythema and flushing rather than hives and urticaria. Um, but they can have symptoms that are, that are very similar to those having a true antibody-mediated reaction. And you can see in the middle there, uh, many of the symptoms of patients with an antibody-mediated reaction versus an infusion reaction are largely overlapping. Um, so in these cases, um, your serum asparagus activity level can really help sort it out. And in this patient um, who received a majority of his dose, um, it would be valuable to send um, you know, five to seven days later to see if there's evidence of, of antibody-mediated destruction of the asparaginase. Thank you very much. Um, so, Professor D'Angelo, how would you proceed when you've had a patient with such a response? Just as Dr. Rao had mentioned, there is a, a spectrum of uh, symptoms uh, that uh, from so very severe that I would be uh, have a low tendency to uh, to rechallenge, or versus mild uh, symptoms where we would always rechallenge at a slower rate, uh, and oftentimes with premedications. I think the key here is uh, in the gray zone where you're not sure whether this is an allergic or infusional reaction is just to make sure that the asparaginase uh, drug levels are, are, re are measured. It's very important, and at least in the United States, I find seldom done, uh, to make sure that you're not having uh, uh, generating a neutralizing antibody uh, because even in a mild infusional uh, reaction sometimes can be very uh, confusing if the patient's been premedicated and only by the uh, lack of ability to measure uh, good uh, uh, drug levels, uh, you won't know that there's neutralizing antibodies. Uh, so we'll often, as I said, stop, slow the rate down, re-dose uh, pre-medications and move on, but always, always, always check uh, uh, drug level. Yes, and I think that's probably the key point that you cannot guess it necessarily by the clinic. Uh, and even patient with quite mild reaction will inactivate if it is really allergy line, allergy. Uh, so the therapeutic drug one is critical. If you have activity, you can continue. You may then limit the symptoms by uh, steroids and antihistamines. If you don't have activity, then you need to shift. Let's take another case 
so this is a four-year-old female patient. Uh, she's had symptoms uh, indicating bone marrow failure. So she had a bone marrow aspirate, which showed T-cell acute hemoplastic leukemia with normal cytogenetics. Uh, the lumbar punctin demonstrates that she has involvement of the central nervous system, although the level of uh, leukemic blast in the spinal fluid is low, that is within the normal range. And she starts anti-leukemic therapy with induction containing percolated asparaginase. Seven days after the first dose of asparaginase, the patient have an asparaginase level of 0.013, while our goal is 0.1 and she shows no sign of overt allergic reaction. So how should we deal with this patient? Professor Angela, will you start off? Sure, I mean, this is unusual uh, that a patient who's, uh, who hasn't uh, uh, been exposed to asparaginase uh, is already developing neutralizing antibodies, but is very concerned. And the neutralizing antibodies, of course, could be from the asparaginase or from the uh, uh, polyethylene glycol uh, moiety, but regardless, uh, she's not ex uh, developing uh, a therapeutic uh, level, uh, and uh, in, in this particular situation, uh, even, even in spite of a, a allergy, uh, I would uh, consider switching up the preparation to try and get a therapeutic level. And let me just add to what you point out, that sometimes patients may react towards the PEG linker, because we have PEG everywhere in the environment, food, uh, cosmetics, and so forth, even COVID vaccinations. Uh, but uh, it's quite rare to react clinically. And if you do react, it's most often seen with the first dose. So if it's late during the therapy, you shouldn't consider that option. Of course, if patients have PEC uh, responses toward the PEC linker, then you could give native E. coli, but very, very few labs have the option to do that measurement. And Professor Rao, is there any issues you want to highlight with the same case, any other things we should consider in the clinic. I think you've highlighted all the, the critical components. This is a patient who has had very rapid degradation of the asparaginase product due to neutralizing antibodies, um, and therefore needs uh, a product without uh, immunologic cross-reactivity. Um, so right now, that would be Erwinia chrysanthemy for this patient. Um, and I would replace the dose to which she reacted, which I think is, is often a question we get. Should we wait until the next due dose or try to replace the one uh, to which this patient reacted. And uh, given the very low level of activity, um, it would be, I think, best in this patient's interest to, to replete the dose that, that was given here since she had no therapeutic level in response to it. Thank you for highlighting this important information. Um, and then we move on to the third case. This is a 20-year-old male who's diagnosed with a lymphoblastic lymphoma. And he also starts a multidrug induction regimen containing pegasparitinase. After the first dose, he feels uh, nauseatic and he is vomiting. He feels dizzy. How should we interpret this kind of response uh, in a clinical situation? This is a relatively common scenario, I feel, in our clinic. Um, a patient will start their IV infusion of pegasparitinase and, and have the symptomatology constellation. Um, in this situation, again, I think you want to stop the infusion quickly and, and very thoroughly assess the patient, including uh, respiratory assessment, vital sign assessment, looking for evidence of, of a true anaphylactic reaction. Um, but oftentimes with these symptoms, um, it's indicative of uh, an infusion reaction caused by that hyperemonemic spike um, that we see after initiation of the infusion. 
Um, so in this case, um, it would probably war be warranted to perhaps premedicate the patient if he hadn't already been premedicated ahead of time and start the infusion, but at a slower rate uh, and very carefully observe him uh, as, as you restart the infusion and, and see how he goes. Yes, and some of these patients will have more profound symptoms. Uh, some may fall asleep. Uh, this patient just feel dizzy, but they may be confused. Uh, and in these cases, it may be helpful to measure the ammonia, but you should be aware that many patients have elevated ammonia without symptoms. So it may be supportive and it may be comforting for the patient and the family to know that we have an explanation. Sometimes even physicians like to have clinical explanations, but uh, if they're very high levels, then you may sometimes mitigate it by either reducing the dose at the next uh, exposure, uh, or you may prolong the infusion time. Should we uh, briefly discuss the issue about hyperbilubinemia, uh, where we see these uh, liver toxicities quite frequently when you give pegylated asparagus early on during the, uh, during the induction therapy. Uh, and I know that this is a much more frequent uh, experience in adult patients, not least patients that are obese. How do you deal with these cases, uh, Professor D'Angelo? Yeah, well, the first thing is just to acknowledge that it happens and uh, that it typically happens during the first course or induction. It doesn't always happen during subsequent courses. So I think a lot of uh, uh, investigators are concerned if it happened once, it's going to happen again. And that's simply not the case. Uh, you know, I try to make sure, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it often occurs in our adult patient population, specifically those with a high body mass index or uh, patients with uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or uh, you know, fatty liver involvement uh, and you know, dietary control, uh, control the, hyper, uh, the triglycerides and, uh, and so on, and try to minimize other uh, hepatotoxic agents or some of the things that we do. But, uh, but by and large, we acknowledge that it occurs and we move on and, and still re-challenge the patient during consolidation. Uh, this is not a reason to discontinue therapy. I think that's really the important teaching point. Yes, and again here, we really lack randomized study. There are ongoing studies that test whether carnitine plays a role. There's a number of anecdotal cases, but we still don't have the proof that it's really beneficial. Uh, even animal studies haven't been very convincing. But uh, I think what you pointed out, the fact that it's an early therapy issue and it tends to really disappear as you move on with the therapy. So thank you all for your attention. Uh, these cases highlight situations that we as clinicians frequently face uh, and where we need to use our clinical experience, sometimes supported by uh, biochemical measurements to guide our therapy in the right direction. The therapeutic drug monitoring of asparaginase activity has become more and more critical and is rapidly expanding across collaborative groups because it really can guide how you can distinguish between uh, the true hypersensitivity or allergic reaction, and those that have allergy-like reactions. And of course, it's critical to identify the 5 to 10% of patients that have cited inactivation. The other important issue is that many of the toxicities that we see, whether it's thrombosis or pancreatitis, don't necessarily repeat yourself. And sometimes they're linked to the very early part of therapy, like the liver toxicity. So you need to regard asparaginase as an essential drug and give it when it's safe, and when you regard it as being beneficial for your specific patient in the situation with a certain anticipated risk of relapse. So thank you very much for participating in this discussion, and thank you to the audience. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.